Good morning, my name's Nathan. This is a joyful psalm. I hope that however you're feeling this morning, wherever you're sitting, you'll be able to rejoice in it. Um, Before we start and get into God's word, I'm going to pray for us. Would you pray with me? Father, we do ask this morning that by your spirit, you would encourage us in your word to respond to you with joy. And Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My 90-year-old grandmother, before she died, lived her life by a very strict rule. You must never curse or swear unless you're playing cards. Now, if you're playing cards, there's a free pass to some very colourful language. When she hit the 500 table, she used to let it rip. Interestingly, though, she would only swear when the cards didn't go her way. When she was winning, she made a very different sound. Here's my question for you. What does victory sound like? What does victory sound like? Soldiers shouting at the end of a battle. A stadium erupting if England manages to score at Wembley. A winning political rally on election night. Victory is noisy. Victory is exuberant, unrestrained, joyful. Think about even your small victories, finding your car keys. Uh, Our instinct is to, to say something, to celebrate, to acknowledge our win. There is joy in victory and it has a sound. Today's scripture is an invitation to joy. So, however you're feeling right now, however this week has been for you, whatever is coming tomorrow, right now in this moment. You're invited to rejoice with me this morning. We're at point one. The Lord is God. The oldest quest in human history is the quest for God. Some people have called it a quest for love or enlightenment or belonging or truth, but to be human is to be on this quest. The Camaragal people who first lived in this region here in Sydney held that a male ancestral figure formed this land during the dreaming. This supreme creator they called Bayame. In prehistoric India, Hinduism grew into a remarkably diverse religion in their quest for God. Hindus can choose to be monotheistic or polytheistic or pantheistic or panantheistic or atheist or humanist. In the Hindu quest for God, God could be one, none, or many. Recently, the actor Morgan Freeman was asked about his belief in God, and he said, I think we invented God, so if I believe in God, it is because I think I am God. You might think that's a pretty outlandish thing to say, but I think that is the natural conclusion to our cultural quest for God. This quest is a quest to find an answer, and you can quest intentionally or unintentionally. And if you're unintentional, your God will be given to you by your culture. In our modern Western culture, you will be your own God. You'll pursue leisure, self-actualization. That is the outcome of an unintentional quest in Western Australia. Or you can be intentional. You can ask questions, 
You can find answers. What do you believe about purpose in the universe? Where did your system of ethics come from? Who is your God? In the ancient Near East, when this psalm was written, uh, and before, there was a God for every nation. Every nation had their own God. The Akkadians had Dagon as their God. The Assyrians had Assyria. In Egypt, they worshipped Amun-Ra and Horus. Every nation had a God. The national God would protect the leaders of the people and keep that nation safe. This is why, in the Bible, the Exodus event is so important for understanding a Christian faith. Because Exodus is the moment that the God of the Bible is announced not as Israel's national God alone, but as the one true God over every nation. Have a look with me at Exodus chapter 5. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says to him, let my people go. Now, how does Moses describe God in this passage? Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Do you see that Moses calls his God the Hebrew God? Because in the ancient Near East, every nation has their own God. But through the Exodus, through that event, God announces himself as the one true God over every nation. It is unprecedented that the God of one nation would go into another nation and have any power to rescue his people. What God could do such a thing? Unprecedented. This is why God says to Moses in chapter 7, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. In the ancient quest for a God, there were lots of gods. But in the Exodus, Moses and Israel and Pharaoh and the Egyptians discover with certainty that there is one true God over every nation. He is the Lord. The Lord is God. Now, if you're listening to this and you're tempted to believe that all religions are the same, then you must revisit that belief. The Bible demands that there is one God and he is Lord. There is no other. We either accept him as Lord or reject him. It's shockingly black or white. And this is why the Pentecost event in the New Testament is so important. For understanding the Christian faith. Because where Exodus was the moment that God was announced as the Lord, Pentecost is the moment when Jesus is announced as Lord of all.
Israel had one God who saved them out of Egypt. At the Pentecost festival, one month after Jesus' death and resurrection, his disciple Peter stood up in the festival crowd and announced to all of them that Jesus has the same title. He is Lord. Read with me from Acts chapter 2. This is what Peter says to the crowds. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The man whom they crucified just a month earlier, he is the Lord. The people in the crowd are rightfully terrified of this announcement. From verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. If Jesus is, as Acts 2 says, Lord over every nation, there is only one response for the crowd, for the disciples, for you and for me. We worship him. That response demands intentionality. It demands knowing who the Lord is. It demands an action. Peter says to the people, repent. Turn back to the one true God. Here's a short story about Lee. Lee Strobel was a 29-year-old journalist when he began to seriously consider the historical Jesus. He was a sceptic, he was an atheist, he was the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune, and he was only interested in cold, hard facts. In his own words, he said, there was far too much evidence that God was merely a product of wishful thinking of an ancient mythology of primitive suspicion." But Lee, as a 29-year-old, had never really to that point been intentional in considering the evidence. But then he did. Here's what he says. Setting aside my own self-interest and prejudices as best I could, I read books, I interviewed experts, I asked questions, I studied ancient literature, and for the first time in my life, picked apart the Bible, verse by verse. And you know what Lee concluded? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is his God. That's point one. There is only one God, and the Lord of the Bible is God. That's what you need to know in order to rejoice in this psalm this morning. We're at point two. The Lord is good. Uh, Many of you know that I have three young children. Rarely do we let our kids choose their own breakfast food. Why? Well, when given that power, do you think they are making healthy choices? How does jelly beans sprinkled in brown sugar sound? 
I don't trust my kids with that kind of power. Who could you trust with absolute power? I don't mean a lot of power, but the power to just go zap and something happens. You're hungry, zap, there's some food. You're cold, zap, here's the sun. You cut me off at the intersection, zap, here's a gaping chasm for your car. Who could you trust to have absolute power and never be careless or cruel with it? Not me, apparently. How long could you handle absolute power before making your first selfish decision? Point two, the Lord is God and the Lord is good. When Israel needed to be reminded that God's absolute power he would use for good, they could look again to Exodus. He saw their suffering, he saw their oppression under the hands of the Egyptians, he heard their cries, and he, in his kindness, brought them out of that land. He freed them, he redeemed them, he gave them a new home. Later, when Israel as they're in the desert, as they're making their way to their new home, kept resisting God, kept choosing other gods from surrounding nations, God did not abandon them. Again, he showed his compassion. Again, he showed his mercy. Again, he he committed himself to this people, despite their rejection. Would you have that kind of patience? Would you be so good? We thank the Lord that he is good. How has God been good to you? Now, you might not be feeling it this morning, but he has. God's goodness comes to us in part through creation, that we have this life, that we have any blessing. God's goodness comes to us in part through his providence, that he sustains the world that we have. God's goodness comes to us in full at the cross of Christ. Look with me in Romans chapter 5. How does God use his power? You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We who are unrighteous are powerless to change that fact. No drowning man rescues himself. But God demonstrates his power and his goodness through a supreme act of love. Christ, who is innocent and without sin, died in our place. This act of love cost Jesus his life so that we might be forgiven and have new life. And the act of love at the cross is entirely consistent with God's character throughout the Bible. He does not change. He does not waver. He is good at the beginning and good at the end. You and I, we might be good in a moment, but God is good always. He was good in the Exodus. He was good through the cross. He is good today. He will be good tomorrow. People change. 
God never does. And that's point two. The Lord is God and the Lord is good. His goodness endures forever. That's what you need to know in order to rejoice in this psalm this morning. The Lord is good. We're at point three. We are his people. Uh, Yes, I have three children. Uh, I like to say that I made them myself. As a joke, um, Catherine did more making than me and God really did more making than the both of us. Anyway, our experience as parents has re-educated us about what unconditional love is. We love our children. Uh, Sometimes I unconditionally love one of them more than the others, but it's still unconditional love. Last night, we had to unconditionally love some of them at 3am, and the thing about kids at 3am is rarely do they accept your unconditional love. Uh, If they've wet the bed, you have to fight them to get them changed and fight them to get them back into bed. They're always resisting. And you think to yourself, let me unconditionally love you. Of course, they always wake up the next morning and don't remember any of it. But, you know, that's, that's the life of being a parent. What's the point? God unconditionally loved those who resisted him. God loved even those who resisted him. Come back with me to the very beginning of time, uh, to the book of Genesis. God's first act in this world was to make it and us. Genesis chapter 1 tells us, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. From these people that he lovingly made, He then chose a specific people. He chose out of them Abraham. We're doing some biblical history here. Abraham, and he said to him in Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And this tiny nation that he chose out of all people, he called Israel and they became his people. He would be their personal God, they would be his personal people. But the story of our Old Testament is that Israel resisted God. Assyria invaded, Babylon invaded, Israelites lost their land, they were dispersed into other nations. And that's kind of where the Old Testament leaves us. Israel kind of dispersed. God's people not really standing together. And that is why 1 Peter chapter 2 is so important for our understanding of the Christian faith. Because God reveals that his biblical plan is still to have his own people. But it's not an ethnic plan, it is a faith plan. All those who come to faith in Christ are his people and he will gather them in one place and he will dwell with them. Here's what 1 Peter says. But you, those who believe in Jesus by faith, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. 
that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Friends, if you confess faith in Jesus, we are God's people. That's point three. It's the Lord God who made you and who loved you and who gave you new life in Christ. We are his people. And that's what you need to know in order to rejoice in this psalm this morning. We're at point four. Come, enter, thank, praise, worship, serve. A man dies and goes up to heaven and meets St. Peter at the pearly gates. So many jokes start that way. I'm not actually telling a joke. Sorry if I just got your hopes up. So many jokes start that way. Why, though, are there pearly gates? What is the importance of that image? Gates can let people in or they can keep people out. If you arrive at a set of gates uninvited, they are designed by their nature to keep you out. But this psalmist, in Psalm 100, invites you, God's people, to enter. Enter God's gates. Come into his courtroom. There is no barrier there. There is no restriction. For God's people, there is direct access to the one true powerful, loving Lord of every nation. This is the song that you sing as you enter those gates. These are the words that we, God's people, use in his presence. This is the response of a thankful people overwhelmed by his goodness. This is the the sound of people sharing in his victory. Let's look at this psalm again. We've kind of been avoiding it this whole talk so far, but let's read it together. As we do, notice the shape of the psalm. The shape is this. There is an invitation and then an affirmation. There is an invitation to do this because of this. Invitation, then affirmation. You're invited to shout, worship, come, enter, thank, praise. A psalm of triumph and joy. And then here is the affirmation. Because the Lord is God. He is good. He made us. We are his. Let's read the psalm together. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Here's the affirmation. Because know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. 
is the affirmation. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Brothers and sisters, once you were not a people, but through the death, resurrection and ascension of Christ, God has made you a people. The Lord worked out this plan across history, through Exodus and Pentecost and today and tomorrow. He won over sin and death. He gathered for himself a new people and God's people are invited to share in God's victory. That's what we know because of what we know through history and because of the testimony of the scriptures. And that is why we can rejoice in this psalm this morning. We're at point five, our last point. When to be joyful. When? When do you sing this psalm? Well, firstly, let me say this again. You won't always feel joy. You don't need me to tell you that. You won't always feel victorious, although God is victorious. You won't always feel like singing, but everything that we have said so far about God and what he's done for us has nothing to do with what I'm feeling and everything to do with what God has actually done. The event of creation, the event of Exodus, the event of Jesus' death and resurrection, the event of Pentecost when he is declared Lord, the real and certain salvation of individuals, you and me. It has been done. And that should be an encouragement for you when you're not feeling joy. When can you sing this psalm? At any time in your new life in Christ. Sing it today. Sing it tomorrow. Because this is your spiritual reality right now. The Lord is God. You are his. We are his. He loves us. And right now, Ephesians tells us, you are seated with him in heaven, behind God's gates, in God's throne room. This is our spiritual reality right now. Ephesians chapter 2 says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. If your trust, if your trust is in Jesus, you can sing this psalm today. But I think we will sing it more fully more resoundingly, with more voices than we can count in our own resurrection. When we finally stand before God after our death, for we will all stand before him, we will come before him with this psalm, with joy, with praise, with thanksgiving, with triumph, with peace. This is a psalm to be sung by God's people in heaven. The words push us forward to that day. Resurrection is the joyful hope of every Christian, and this is the soundtrack. 
My 90-year-old grandmother made very different noises if the cards were going her way to if they weren't. Different occasions call for different sounds. What is the sound of a Christian life? What is the sound of our church? What is the sound of heaven? An old woman winning at cards sounds exuberant. A basketball game sounds squeaky. A lightning storm sounds dangerous. A people gathered before the Lord their God sounds like resounding, exuberant, unrestrained, absolute joy.